0: Pastor Kellogg before. I remember when I first met him, he was probably about 80 years old, close to that when I first met him. And I remember thinking my whole life that I knew him, I, I want to be just like that guy when I grow up. And uh, he's a wonderful fellow. You know, as 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 kids, I think when we grow up, right, as we're growing up, we we, we, we kind of look for the formula to approach life with, right? The The, the, the formula for financial success or the formula for success in marriage, or the formula for success in raising children, or formula for financial success, or spiritual success, or whatever it is. And, you know, we kind of, I think, uh, that our tendency, if it was, if your tendency is like mine, particularly when I was young, is to think of life as kind of a series of math problems, that you figure out, you know, how to, so- how to solve that problem then you tuck it away and you pull that out the next time use that formula and uh, everything goes well right and then and then you have kids and then life happens and then your job doesn't go the way you expected it to and um well you soon realize that the formulas don't work so well the apostle paul wrote to the corinthians he said you know he said when i was a child i talked like a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child but when i became a man i put childish ways behind me paul said that because he knew that not everyone does and the people at the church at corinth certainly hadn't done so spiritual maturity is inhibited when we try to reduce our spiritual life to a series of formulas We see that with the Pharisees in the Gospels and the Gospel of John that we've been looking at. We saw recently they they took the fourth commandment and they stripped it of any thoughtful reflection. There was lots of reflection, but it wasn't a thoughtful reflection. And they reduced it to a formula that they then themselves followed and they imposed it on others and insisted that they follow. And so when the Son of God comes and he doesn't endorse, embrace, or abide by their formula, they think that he's the one who's doing something wrong. And that's what we tend to do, right? We tend to set up rules and formulas by which to navigate life. We might even try to sincerely base them on on God's word that seemed like there was, a, there was a time there through the 90s when there were all kind of books on God's formula for raising children. The problem with formulas is that we tend to take them to absurd conclusions. And anything that looks like real righteousness ends up getting jettisoned along the way. It's an ironic thing, you know, but Jesus came to set us free from that i want to read to you today from colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 i'm sorry not colossians ecclesiastes uh, 3 1 through 13 this is god's word it's a a portion of god's word the book of ecclesiastes that uh, isn't read so very often in church but i want to read it to you today There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. <coughs> and Father, we thank you that there is a time for everything and our time is in your hands. And Lord, today, as we reflect on your word in this uh, day of fellowship, we, we, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand the times because there's not a, a formula, but wisdom is in knowing the time we pray you'd make us wise through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's a terrible formula for life. It's a terrible formula for life because all formulas for life are terrible. Whether or not this is a true or helpful principle depends very much on why it is said, the context in which it is said, and the time in which it is said. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, you know, many people attribute that quote to a fellow by the name of Epicurus. He was a Greek philosopher. And uh, Epicurus believed that when death came, it ended both soul and body that in other words, when you, when you died, you died, that was it, that that was all there was to it, there was nothing beyond that, there was no consciousness, and, and Epicurus noticed that, you know, that the, that, the, that the process of death was not necessarily painful, death itself, he thought, was not something to be feared, because it's just the end of it, and you're just not conscious of anything anymore, and, and the process of death is, not necessarily, is not, necessary, not necessarily something to be feared because many people die without pain or distress. But even if you do die in pain and distress, what can you do about it? And you don't know what the end will be like. So the goal then is for you to live a happy, a peaceful life free from worry and from pain, and to find significance in friends and family and the food that you have. It's, it's not a terrible philosophy. There are worse philosophies. Uh, Epicurus would have made a pretty good neighbor. It's Epicurus, I think, that Paul's referring to when he says in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-two. well, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow... We die. Why why did Paul say that? Why was he saying that to them? Because he wanted to remind them that death is not the end. that That there's more to life and the meaning of life than that. And Paul's whole goal with the Corinthians was to impress upon them the reality of the resurrection. It's something that we confess today. That we look for the resurrection of the dead or we, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the Apostles' Creed. Because if this is all there is to life, well, that makes us lose perspective. Right? Uh, thank you. Where's Michael? Michael, thank you for praying for uh, Nathan and Marjorie. You know, they're planning... For their marriage and I'm and I'm grateful to say that they're planning for their marriage and not merely planning for their wedding uh, over the years I have known some people who have put a great deal of planning into their marriage or into their wedding rather not very much planning into their marriage and it's like they they were focused on this goal but they forgot that there was a whole other thing after that that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians He's saying don't lose perspective, that this life is not all that there is, that, that there's a, a whole long forever that's coming. Everything is beautiful in its time, the writer to Ecclesiastes said, but understanding the time means understanding the truth of who we are and what our destiny is. And though Paul's message to the Corinthians, I think, was a counter to that uh, Epicurean denial of the resurrection, the words that are quoted here are are pretty much verbatim from Isaiah chapter 22, verses 12 through 13. You you know, there's no indication in uh, Isaiah's time that his Hearers denied the resurrection doctrinally, but practically they were living without its perspective. Let me read you what Isaiah says. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth, but see... There's joy and reverie, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. And the problem for the people of Isaiah's day is that they were feasting like there was no tomorrow. When in their situation, if you read what was happening at the time that Isaiah wrote, that they should have been fasting and lamenting in repentance because their hearts were far from God. But it had to do with the time. You see, is is it wrong to feast? By no means is it wrong to feast. Jesus did it so much that the Pharisees accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. And Israel's religion had built into it Three national days of feast. One was the Passover. That was a kind of a sober dinner feast, though it was. But then there was the feast of the ingathering and the feast of booths, and those were joyful feasts. By contrast, there was only one standing day of fasting, or that's how they understood it, preparatory to the Day of Atonement uh, in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus uh, 16. And Numbers 29, in preparation of that day, it says simply that they were to afflict themselves. And the Jews, from time out of mind, understood that to mean that they were to fast on that day. If there's a problem with feasting, it was one of propriety and timeliness. Not even the Sadducees were so biblically formulaic as to argue well, fasting's only commanded one day in the Bible, so that's the only time we should do it. There's a time for fasting. There's a time for feasting. And wisdom dictates which one when. And remembering that we'll die, even in the midst of celebration, is not a bad thing, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. I think that's why... A lot of people don't like the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of puzzling some of the things that are said uh, in it. But it tells us to remember that we're going to die. Not a bad thing, friends, to remember that we're going to die. Uh, The British poet and moralist Samuel Johnson uh, had written, you probably know this quote, he said, "'Depend upon it, sir. "'When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight,' It concentrates the mind wonderfully. The Romans had a phrase for that. They called it memento more. Remember you must die. Was a reminder that life would not go on forever and ever, that you had a limited amount of time. And, And so the question was what will you do with this time? Uh, Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, employed a courtier to greet him every day when he got up to bathe to say, Philip, remember that you will die. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us it's appointed for people to die once and after that, the judgment. Memento mori, remember that you must die. It concentrates the mind wonderfully. Is that a good thing? Depends very much on what it concentrates your mind upon. John Adams was very aware of his impending death. He was very aware that one day he must die. And and that knowledge prompted him. It goaded him. It drove him. He greatly desired the historical immortality of a significant life. He feared, above all else, he wrote, he said, being like the mass of mankind whose lives have no meaning, who live and die like cattle. John Adams wanted significance, he wanted to be somebody. And he was. And in John Adams' case, that worked out pretty well for him. And it worked out pretty well for us, too. It's not always the case. There have been people in history whose minds have been focused by death, that they have a limited amount of time, who strove with all of their might to be somebody, and in so doing have brought misery and ruin upon people by doing so. Memento mori, remember that you must die. It's good. It's not universally good. Beneficial for us only if it focuses our minds on the right things. If you remember that you must die in the context of what the Bible teaches you about who you are, and what your destiny is. If you have answered the call of God. To come to him through Jesus Christ. Even then though there's a time for everything. And it's not always good to dwell on death. Memento mori is not always a good thing. There's a time for every Purpose. Under heaven, and God has made all things beautiful in their time. There's a time for memento mori, that time is not today. We confessed today that we look for the resurrection of the dead, that we believe in the resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection? Because if you do, Today is a day for memento vivi, to remember that you must live. You must live. If God's word is true, if what Christ has done is real, you must live. Jesus came so that we would have Life and have it abundantly. You know, the Bible speaks of receiving eternal life in Jesus. That doesn't mean someday in the by and by. That means receiving the life of God right now and living it through to forever. It's because of Jesus that John saw a vision of the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah the prophet of a new heaven and a new earth. And the reality is, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that our bodies which are sown perishable, which are sown corruptible, will be raised imperishable and incorruptible. Remember that you will live. That what you do now counts for eternity. You will live. Your destiny is not to live as some disembodied spirit in a cloudy wash of white light. I'm sorry, Mr. Plato, but that's not what the Bible teaches. It's to live on a renewed and vibrant earth with trees and grass and flowers and birds and streams and friends. Look around you to live with friends, with your brothers and sisters in Christ forever. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to weep and there's a time to mourn and there's a time to shun embracing. Today's not that day. Today we've got our church picnic. If you came in late, that's why we're dressed like this. Right, I told people I'm going to wear my Hawaiian shirt, and I showed up. Most everybody else wearing Hawaiian shirts today, in solidarity. Thank you. And I hope that you're planning to stay today. And I say that, by the way, not not to guilt you into staying, but but I but I hope that you will. Because the relationships that we have now, that we build now, are for eternity. And the joy in the Lord that we experience with one another now are the foretaste of the eternity that God has for us. You know, I was, I was just reminded of that a, a, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, we were, when we were down at the beach with, with Doug and Debbie. And it was just a delightful time. And it was a restful time. It was a spiritually refreshing time. And, and I remember being overwhelmed with the sense that this is what it will be like forever. Today's a time to laugh. It's a time to dance. It's a time to embrace. It's a time for memento vivi. Remember that you will live. Jesus came to give you life starting right now if you'll answer his call, came to give you life and to give it abundantly. Memento vive. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for uh, your love and your grace. Uh, Father, for all of our times which are in your hand for this uh, time today that you've given us. uh, A time to laugh a time to dance a time to embrace Father we pray that your blessing would be upon that time and upon our fellowship May, may we do all of these things in your presence in the knowledge of christ because of whom we'll live and that father you'll be pleased in all that we do through christ our lord